Hello and welcome back to Versify, the Poetry and English Literature podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I can tell you that I'm sitting uh, at Robin's kitchen table. Um, so I would like to say thank you very much, Robin, for hosting the pod this morning. No sweat. And I am relieved to say that I'm also joined by David. Hello, both of you. <laughs> um, and thank you very much to you, listener, for joining us. Um, as you know, we uh, we like to dive into a poet about which about whom we know very little, and we're going to be doing that for sure. In my case, uh, this morning, um, guys. Just before we get onto the subject of today's um, uh, podcast, we normally have a little catch up on the, the last pod and uh, say if there's anything we wanted to say. Now, we we've almost always never got anything to say on this section, um, so you might think that it should be dropped. However, if I can just go back to the initial initial rationale, it was because when we started, we were aware that we were saying things which were blatantly wrong, and we just felt like... If oh, we, and if, we still very much are. Yeah, but if we just sort of thought, if people were actually listening, we at least should, where we immediately went, oh, that was just totally wrong, um, just acknowledge that. Um, I don't know, for a sense of rightness. Anyway, I would just like to say, on the Shakespeare pod, a subject very close to my house, heart, I mistakenly pronounced the name of the dark lady, supposedly, um, and I still can't remember how it's... I think it's Bassanio. Bassano. 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 Yeah. You I, said Bastano. Yeah, I, which is quite... quite but I think, that was, clear, I think that was cleared up on the pod. I think your, your conscience is relatively clear. Do you think my, oh, I, I think I swept up behind you... Um, Okay. With, the, with, the, with the correct yeah. reading. Yeah. Of the and, I, and I think it was just um, over-exuberance and, and a lack of notes that possibly led to that rather huge... I don't think ritual harakiri is required for that one. <laughs> um, we probably don't know the mistakes. You know, we, are, we don't know the known unknowns, you know, or the unknown unknowns, I suppose, um, where we've really um, put our foot in it. Hopefully, sometimes uh, the the listeners can kindly. Yeah, well, it's only been a in. week, hasn't it, since that one was um, Went released? Live. Oh, we out we to recorded the world, it so about a month ago. Yeah. People haven't had enough time to. <clears throat> Yeah. To, really to, find, yeah, to get really angry about yeah. it. We have got, however, one brilliant um, uh, uh, bit of sweeping up to do uh, after that pod, which is that we found. Do you remember we found that thing about? Dark eyes versus dark brows across the two um, readings of that sonnet, sonnet whatever it was, a hundred I think. I I do remember. Mm. And we said at the time that the Stanley Wells book that I had was probably the gold standard. The gold standard, but then we discovered that eyes was in the fo- the uh, quarto, the yeah. Q, yeah. Uh, and therefore That's that right. was what was reflected in the Arden. Shakespeare mm. and well, who Dave? You should say this because you contacted Stanley Wells <laughs> himself, <laughs> Sir Stanley Wells, just at closing time in the in the pub, wasn't it? Just <laughs> I tracked him down. Yeah. I followed him home, and uh, I wouldn't, yeah, uh, I wouldn't rest until he let me in. I mean, we, we discussed it over a over a nightcap. Yeah. Um, well, obviously, yeah. What actually happened was I I tweeted him. Uh, and he replied pretty quickly, didn't he? With a with an interesting kind of confirmation. I mean, I don't think my tone was too sort of accusatory. I mean, I ran it past both of you because I was a big, this was a big one. I didn't mm. want to get this. Yeah. Didn't want to get this wrong. You want to make an enemy out of you. You don't want to blood the nose can, can, can of Sir Stanley Wells. Can, yeah, can I just very quickly jump in just to say, you know, Sir Stanley Wells, if you don't know, which is no reason why leaders and listeners should, is the lead editor of the Oxford Shakespeare, mm. the standard edition. Yeah. Sorry, can yeah. He's an eminent man. Yeah. And he's into his 90s now as yeah. well. And he's. Yeah. Fair play to him, active on, on Twitter and happy to reply to randoms um, with, with cheeky questions. 
which is a true testament to the man. Because, I mean, when I'm 94 and a, vener- a revered, you know, literary figure in the international world, I'm not going to be, what, within a day, less than a day, t- tweeting back to randos on, on the internet, <laughs> questioning my editorial skills. But, but he, he, he did. He did, yeah. And he copped to it as well. In fact, he didn't just cop to it. I would say he definitely l- went into it chin first and went, yeah, so what? <laughs> <laughs> what did he say to it? No, yeah, he did, he, so essentially, we kind of said, did you, did you decide that you're better than Shakespeare? That was the, sort of the gist of the question, wasn't it? Did you decide that... I forgot which way around it was. That, that Browls was better than Eyes. I think Eyes was, was repeated. Was yeah. In the in the quarto, eyes was yeah. repeated. He two, two successive lines. He didn't like the repetition. But anyway, it does, turns out it wasn't him. But. It, well, yeah, so it, it transpires that he didn't make that decision. He was going off um, an earlier. I forget who who it was. Who I think there was some kind the, of standard edition. Did he said it was about nineteen sixty four or something, something like that. Some, yeah. some very scholarly edition or whatever that he was going by. Yeah, yeah. And those, I wonder. I mean, the participants in that are possibly not around to give no, their answers so. anymore. But it's interesting, is it? Because it does indicate how. The complexity of editing Shakespeare, because there are so many historic variants and versions, and trying to land definitively on one decisive um, version, and that's just one sonnet. But obviously, as we know from having read all the plays, or most of the plays now, um, there's often discrepancies in the, the various texts that we bring to our little armchair Shakespeare society. Um, so that was just one little one further bit of evidence of the difficulty of the editing process. So, uh, so Stanley Wells, not that you'll ever hear this, but uh, full, full, <laughs> a full measure of respect to you, sir. Here, here. Yeah, 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 wonderful. And we were so pleased to receive that. I take it that is pretty much it for the catch-up. That was a good catch-up. Mm. Yeah, we had Best yet. <laughs> Better than the podcast. <laughs> um, guys, the subject of today's podcast is Robert Frost. I'll just very briefly say that... Um, <clears throat> I, I don't know very much about Rob Frost. We've moved the recording just that little bit earlier as well. I was going to cram just for like half an hour, just so I. Uh, uh, now, now we're not even. I'm not even going to get that. Um, I think before we go into talking too much about Robert Frost, shall we hit the exciting section of the podcast called the pub quiz section? Yes, we should do that. All right, I will go first. I will go first, and I have in my hand here. Uh, John Carey's A Little History of Poetry um, in uh, Yale University Press, which is obviously A Little History of Poetry. It's in that series of books that looks a bit like the E.H. Gombrich cover from the late 30s or 40s, whenever it was. And this is my question. Don't look, because you'll be, you'll be able to cheat. Just before, I, just before I read this question, I just want to read you this uh, quote from this. This is actually about um, Edward Thomas, who had met Frost. But I just like this line. This is Thomas... He had married young and, refusing to get a job, vowed to live by his pen. Drudgery and poverty followed. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Now, my Robert Frost Frost question is as follows. This is quite a hard one to get. This book is, let's say there's 30 chapters. They're all very short. Actually, it's 40 chapters. They're all very short. And to put it into perspective for you, the first one is called, you know, God's Heroes and Monsters and starts with the Epic of Gilgamesh. Then you come down to the sort of ones where he bunches poets together. So you've got like Tudor court poets, mm-hmm. where you've got Skelton, Wyatt, Surrey and Spencer. You've got the age of individualism with Johnson, Herrick and Marvell. You get the picture. Okay. So the question is simply... No metaphysicals grouped together? Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, 
Yep. Uh, oh, I thought Marvel might have made it into the metaphysicals. Oh, well, actually, mm. no, you're right. He doesn't use metaphysicals. He says the age of individualism for Johnson, Herrick and Marvell, and then he says religious individualists for Herbert Vaughan and Traherne. Then occasionally people get their own chapter. Mm-hmm. So Milton gets his own. I mean, the chapters are only sort of six pages long. Okay, here's the question. Sabbath. What is the name of the section in which you will find Robert Frost? Oh, interesting. Hmm. That's a hard question. Interwar Americans. Yeah, that's a great shout. Although he was obviously alive till 1963, as we've discussed on a previous pod. Mm. So, not technically interwar, but he did his majority of his work in the... You're not far off, because there is a chapter called The Thirties Poets, Mm -hmm. Auden, Spencer, McNeese. Yeah. There is a, a section called American Confessional Poets with Lowell, Berryman, Snodgrass, Sexton and Recker. Yeah. Recky. Recky. <laughs> Let's not bring that up again. Um, no Wallace Stevens in there. Uh, I thought he'd have squeezed into that category. I can't... That looks like a great book, man. Uh, yeah, I've got the little history of literature, but not the, not the poetry one. Um, that looks like it should be called Really Bluff Your Way in Poetry. Do you, do you want, do you want um, the ones either side of it? Yeah, why not? Yeah. Okay, so the one before it is New Voices at the End of an Era, Hardy, Houseman, Kipling and Hopkins. Mm-hmm. And the one after the one you're looking for is called Poetry of the First World War. I, I don't need to rehearse that. And the one after that is Yates getting his own chapter called The Great Escape. So you're looking for a cha- chapter title that's got... You want to lean in a bit more, Dan? You're looking for a chapter title that's got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10... 11. The Moderns. The Modern Era. The modernists. No, because there is a chapter after the H one called Inventing Modernism. Damn it! Yeah, so I was going to say it's not going to be. Does it's it, not going to be pre First World War, is it? If does it's it list um, other poets? It does. That was going to be the second question. question. That's going to be that question. Mm. Oh, it's, I mean, what else? He's not. Edna Savinsamila is surely in this. Is in is in this section um, with him, isn't she? I th- isn't she more post First World War? Oh yeah, maybe mm. yeah. Because this is quite mm. a disdefinite sort of. Is it? Is it American? Is it? Nope. That's nothing to do. No, nope. he is the only okay. Brit in. Who else will there be? This then? section. Um, how about what's his name that we did? Old uh, Houseman. That's the same era as Houseman. Correct, um, but Houseman is in new voices. <laughs> oh, is he? Damn it. So it's right after Houseman. Do you want me to So we're talking about the Edwardian era. We're talking about nineteen. You're on the right lines. Oh, the Edwardians, but not the Edwardian. Ah. The post-Victorian, the the naughty the noughties. The but there's actually five volumes of poetry with this title from the time. Huh. I, I, I was birth of a birth of birth of a cool birth of a century. Birth of a cool birth of, birth of the cool. <laughs> That's birth it, of it, the cool. That's Miles Davis. What's, what's the the Ponce, like not fantasy Eckler, but the the. Yeah, That's the it. one after it. Not the end, not, not end of the century, but the beginning of the century. Is there a Ponzi word for it? The golden age. What's it called? What's it called? The 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 the, 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 um, the gilded age. The, the, the no, it's not jazz age. It's, oh right, it's, yeah. Late, oh, okay, like the, in France, yeah. you've got the belly pock. The belly mm, pock. That's what I was thinking sort of. of yeah, yeah. That sort of pre fantasy to bring yeah. out our French from our Duolingo. Mon Dieu. Mon Dieu. I'm not going to get this. Yeah, I don't well, when you said Edwardian poets, you mm. were very close in in concept. Hmm. What else is that? Shall I put you out of your misery? Yeah, I think you're going to have to put us out of your misery. I feel like I'm taking a much loved dog out. Victorian. Of the revival. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not Victorian. Okay, what is it? Oh, Shep, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the Georgian poets. Is it? 
What? It was a. It was. It's a whole. Okay. Where your next question is? Hang on. Hang on. Who's Georgian? Georgian. Yeah, but yeah, but not exactly. That's what's confusing about it. Not Georgian, as, as in, in Georgian, Georgian architecture. No, no. Right. Well, I mean, that's just no We would never, we would never have got that. Is it, uh, I can't remember the design. Which George are we talking about? George V. Fifth. Fifth. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Was it like nineteen ten to nineteen thirty something? Yeah, until um, thirty-seven. Yeah, the abdication crisis. Yeah. Of course. yeah. Um, okay. Any other poets? Well, I so, mean, they're quite big names. We've got the era. No, you, you're so close, but I've already told you that Hardy is in the chapter before oh, yes, New so. Voices at the end of an era. But you've got quite a lot to shoot for here. Oh, God. I mean, I've told you Edward it Thomas. Piled the pressure on. You yeah. can't have Edward Thomas. It is a, it's a, it's a bust. Frost and Thomas were great friends, of course, weren't they? Yes. They would go walking together. Yes. We've, yes. we've mentioned Frost on a couple of different pots now. Mm. Yes. Pound. No, he he, he, he gets inventing modernism with Elliot. Yeah. I'll I, I give you some more clues. Uh, we have done one of these people on this podcast. Mm. Um, not in, in, so discounting Edward Thomas. Edward Thomas. That'll be Graves. Yes. Oh, very good. Very good. I don't know why he's a Georgian and not a, a First, World, First World, World War poet. I mean, it's all Cat, a bit. It's all a bit, yeah. But I mean, I think there were these publications at the time called the, the Georgian Poets or something. The other ones in there were Walter de la Mer, don't know anything about W.H. Davis. Oh, well, I've bought his big book recently. I've bought the collected W.H. Davis, and I've been I've been militating for us to do W.H. Davis. Okay. Ours is, what's it, so I'm to stop and stare, that one. Leisure, that's him, isn't it? Yeah. What's the line? Uh, we, we have no time to... Stand and stare. Stand and stare. Something, something. <laughs> that's why we should do him, do even right. his only famous line we don't know. Yeah, we have the, the, the listeners, isn't he? Oh, and, yeah. uh, and the one about going down to the sea. Yeah. I think that's yeah. him too, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Chesterton. Oh. Hilaire Belloc. Oh, I love a bit of Hilaire Belloc. Cautionary Tales for Children. Yeah. W- Absolute belter. W.W. W. Gibson, of whom I have literally never heard until never this heard. moment. No. Robert Graves and D.H. Lawrence. Okay. Okay, so that's uh, my question. The frost element there is that frost appears in Carey's quite magisterial a brief history of poetry under the Georgian poets. Right on. Okay, well, we didn't know that and we weren't going to ever know it. <laughs> and even though we've just discussed it, I still don't know it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, ask me again in five minutes. Yeah. No chance. Um, right, I'm going to jump in with my question. Please do. Which is much shorter and you are, it's like binary. You either know it or you don't know it. <laughs> So I, I think I know which one it's going to be. We're, we're not going to get into a guessing game here, yeah, lads. All right. One line of Frost's poetry has got a very special significance. And I would hazard a guess that it had a very special significance for him and his family. And the line is, I had a lover's quarrel with the world. Is a line of Frost's poetry. It's an excerpt from his poem, The Lesson for Today. What is the special significance of that line? Of all the lines he ever wrote. Not, I chose the path less travelled by, and that has made all the difference. Mm. But instead, I had a lover's quarrel with the world. I know. Okay, what is it, Dan? I'll let David have a crack. I mean, I've fallen into the other camp. Then. <laughs> <laughs> You're quite right. We have split ourselves right down the middle, down the binary, yeah. and uh, well, um, you got a one and a zero. So basically, I'm not going to guess this. Is that is that? Oh no, you can guess it. You can completely guess it. As in, you don't. You got. Oh, you can completely guess it. Maybe you could just drop drop some hints. 
This is a line that you could, with a bit of due diligence and travel, go and read yourself. Yeah. You, you in particular. So it's on his gravestone. Yes. That is the line it says, Robert Frost, his dates, and under which it says, I had a lover's quarrel with the world. Awesome. It is awesome. I mean, aside from the, you know, that's why I think if I were going to go for writing, I would just go for facts online. Because, you know, any kind of inscription of that kind of nature runs the risk of characterising or mischaracterising your whole life in some way. You know what it says on Billy Wilder's grave? No. It says, Billy Wilder, I think it says, possibly occupation, possibly mm-hmm. writer-director. Mm-hmm. Then it's got his dates. He's earned that hyphen. And under which, in a, in a much bigger font than everything else, it just says, nobody's perfect. Nice. Yeah. That's <laughs> good. That's yeah. a choice grave, yeah. I mean, when I, read, when I first heard that, the lover's quarrel, he had a, a lover's quarrel with the world or with the universe? With the world. He had a lover's quarrel with the world, yeah. I loved it instantly, and I was like, yeah, that's great. It's, it's, it's got so much in it, you know, his, his, his positive outlook, his affection, his commitment, his ethics, but a recognition of the difficulties and travails of the imperfections of, of life. So I love it, but I also kind of, I'm just, it's, it, I, I think I just go for my dates. Just your dates? Yeah. Have you, have you given any thought to this matter? No, but I, go, I am now. <laughs> I'm planning to be lost in space. (laughs) (laughs) You'll you'll still want some sort of uh, memorial, I'm sure. True, yeah. I think the thing that uh, Hunter Thompson did, as well, Hunter S. Thompson did, which was um, had a giant party at Woody Creek, his Colorado ranch, and then had his ashes blasted out of two huge thumbs <laughs> two huge thumbs ups. I think it was Johnny Depp that pulled the lever yeah. blasted him out yeah. of two huge thumbs yeah. painted with the stars and stripes as I recall I may have got that slightly wrong in <laughs> granular detail but the spirit of it is yeah. true yeah. I, th- I think if you're going to do something a bit different that's a good one yeah <laughs> okay right well that was oh David your question uh, yeah um, my question is uh, which major poem and well-loved poem was written about a visit to Robert Frost's house or oh. was inspired by a visit to Robert Frost's house I stopped house. in the woods on a snowy evening not a Robert Frost oh I poem. see oh I see a much-loved poem by somebody else someone else and it was, was it by Edward Thomas because they were buds yeah I was kind of must admit I was kind of hoping that uh, he wouldn't come up already in, in another question and he did so that has helped Quite significantly. Wow, that's the right answer. Well, that's the poet. Okay, we need a... Whoa, 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 hang on a second. So Edward Thomas wrote a poem about Robert Frost's house. Well, not about Robert Frost's house. Inspired by... I don't want to give it away. Okay, okay, so there's more parts. But on on the way there, Mm -hmm. he was inspired to write this poem. Oh, Adelsthrop, Adelsthrop. That's the one, Adelsthrop. Adelsthrop. I'd say we got that 50-50. Yeah. Mm, teamwork. Yeah. Okay. Teamwork makes the dream work. See, I, did, I had no idea about that until... <coughs> I, I didn't know he was, they were mates until a couple of days ago. You want to re-listen to Dan and I's incredibly... <laughs> <Well, laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, that's been ages since... Uh, did you yeah. mention... Yeah. Did you mention Frost? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So they, they, were, they, were like, they went walking together. They were like besties and they, they would meet Because, yeah, I didn't even... I didn't realise... 
Frostcross lived here. Yeah, must have done. So he lived in Herefordshire. Presumably, yeah. Close to Ledbury, I believe. Right. Presumably quite close to uh, Edward Thomas. So So Thomas is on the way there on the train. Um, Yeah, they were. And and I think it was was Frost who more or less told Thomas to write poetry. Mm -hmm. And I also noticed, and I was going to mention it at the start before, but I didn't want to ruin my question. There is a poem in in here, in in the Frost selected poems, called To E.T., which I assume is... Oh, there is one too. Yeah, well, this obviously brings us very nicely into the sort of final section before we get into the poetry itself, which is to say both a bit about what we know about Edward Thomas and sort of like how he fits into our own universe. You mean Robert Frost? I'm so sorry. Yeah, Robert Frost. You don't hear him sort of reference very much anymore because I think he was obviously a massive sort of point of reference prior to his death in was in nineteen sixty three. You said, yeah, um, sort of back in the in the day in America in particular, um, and now over here. When do you ever hear the name Robert Frost? Well, only to do with the roadless taken, isn't it? The, 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 Which is like a popular meme slash poster in classrooms, student rooms. I mean, that's a household. We've described this before as a household and in poem. I mean, mm. everybody knows that poem. It's taught in schools. It's in posters. I mean, that's a, one of the most famous poems, I would argue, in the tw- from the 20th century. Oh, yeah. I feel like the Snowy Woods one is sort of a yeah, similar Yeah, Miles to Go Before I Sleep, Miles yeah. to Go Before I Sleep. But, you know, I, I, I took the path less... You know, two roads diverged in a wood, that metaphor, the path less travelled, etc. Although I believe that, according to Frost and according to everybody who really understands Frost, that poem is widely misunderstood. I think now's a good time to hear your theory. <laughs> it's not my theory, it's Robert Frost's theory, I think, was that he was writing a poem. It was, okay. it was a big, no, there's a big article about it. There's a big article about it in, I think, The New Yorker about a year ago, which was all about how there's like a shallow understanding of that poem, which is incredibly wide, and then there's the actual understanding of that poem, which is like incredibly, incredibly tiny, you know, with his art, you know. That the that the, uh, the 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 literati take a completely contrary view of what that poem is saying. Okay, well, it, and Frost among them. So uh, uh, we may have to clarify this on the next pod, unless okay, I can find great. it in the next couple no, of no, minutes. No, no. <clears throat> but the but, but the idea that what Frost is saying is go out, young man, and make difficult and unusual choices, and co- go through the brambles. No, what he's saying is utterly the opposite of that. Which is saying that's it's a poem about indecision and making bad decisions. Mm. Okay. Okay. Oh no, he's also saying that has made all the difference is bad. It didn't make the difference, and my life is amazing. He's saying I, 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 that made all the difference. My life is terrible. That's the that's the end of the poem. It's a downbeat poem about indecision and bad decision making. You sound like you're on that program, that comedy panel show. Could I, was it? Would I lie to you? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and all of that was <laughs> a lie. <laughs> No, no, I thought you were going to say that it was misunderstood in the sense that everybody has taken it as a metaphor and actually it was just literally about him on a journey yeah. taking the wrong and getting lost. Why don't we hear a little bit from you, David, um, your personal um, frost frostiness? Yeah, I mean, not much, again. Uh, I've This copy of the selected poems, The Penguin, um, has annotation has well has uh, barely got any annotations in it at all actually it's got a few pencil marks against some of the poems mm-hmm. and I do vaguely recall a seminar at university mm-hmm. twenty odd years ago uh, in what it must have been the nineteen twenties Amer- American literature 
course that I did, mm-hmm. I think, in my final mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really remember anything about the seminar. Um, but for it bloomed large in that course. I yeah, well, he, he certainly featured yeah. you know, at least on one occasion. Mm-hmm. I don't even recall writing any essays about him or anything like that. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's kind of kind of where it stopped. I mean, I, I, flicking through this, there, obviously there are those two poems we've already mentioned that that are pretty well known, very well known. There are actually one or two others that I sort of now vaguely recall. Um, I think there's a few that have cropped up on exam mm-hmm. papers. Mm-hmm through the years mm-hmm. but uh, yeah I've never I mean one of the main reasons for doing this it was it, it cropped up uh, it was Chad wasn't it I mentioned him in the last episode who suggested Frost as a, as a subject I think other people have mentioned him as well I've certainly you know, always thought about it because it's like a major name this is what the point of this whole thing is isn't it? a major name that we don't really know yeah. enough about well, we're going to plunge in in a minute. Mm. Um, Incidentally, I'll just look it up. It was it was the Paris Review, not the New Yorker. The long article is called "The Most Misread Poem in America," and the head the, the subheadline is "Everyone knows Robert Frost's The Road Not Taken, and almost everyone gets it wrong." I think that is one for the avid Frost fans uh, amongst our amongst our listenership to get to the Paris Review. The Paris Review dot org, the most misread yeah. poem in America, which but, is about the road not taken. That in itself, though, is just. Beautifully appropriate, isn't it? The, the, the yeah. sort of divergent yeah. <laughs> interpretation of the boat yeah. and choosing the wrong one. Okay. Well, do you want to do a personal thing about for, for, a fossil? I don't know. We basically any... heard your. Yeah. I don't know anything about Frost other than that poem, which I which I have myself, what, what evidently widely understood, and obviously, yeah, as you say, uh, stopping by the woods in a, in a snowy evening. That's about it. I mean, okay. we, we, we've mentioned him, I think, on the Edmund St. Vincent Millet pod, where I found out, as we were recording it, that he'd won four um, Pulitzers. Pulitzers for poetry. Yeah. Um, I think three times in the 1920s and once in the 30s, roughly that, um, but quite close together. Mm-hmm. So in the 20s mm-hmm. was his, was his evidently his golden age, um, as far as his, 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 his success and uh, awards it, were concerned. Yeah. Yeah. Um, must we, nice... also, we also know that he was there doing a poem at the inauguration of mm. John F. Kennedy, which oh, right. was as a very elderly man, yeah, that's right before well. he died. Obviously, we know he died in 63. Oh, um, so he was in 60, well, 1960, presumably, he was in inauguration, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe yeah. probably, no, probably January 61, I would have thought, because uh, the inauguration's at the start of the year, isn't it? Or is it January 60? No, Kennedy didn't win in 1991 mind and this might be and in incorrect. your car <laughs> in my mind and definitely also in my car um for, he's a bit like ted hughes he's like a sort of too popular too revered in his own time to be cool after oh, his death do you, okay. do you see what i'm getting like yeah there's that kind of thing isn't there people who are a bit less known um tend often to be sort of to, to live on a bit more beyond their their life whereas uh, for us to me is like to, what's an equivalent I'm trying to think of an equivalent sort of like in, an, in a different art form cultural figure who's sort of so like the person that you go to like he's the go-to American poet of that era yeah and therefore since then people want to look elsewhere for 
slightly more interesting. More novelty. Yeah. And, yeah. Reference points. Yeah. That's that's kind of how I think of him. Yeah. So I mean, he's 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 sort of as you said, super huge, particularly in America, and therefore not outre or groovy enough to be. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. I was going to say then that um, on Robert Frost, you said that he was died, he died in nineteen sixty three. He was pretty old when he died. He was born, I think, in seventy four, eighteen seventy four. Yes, correct. Right, yeah. In San Francisco. Oh, was he born in San Francisco? Mm-hmm. Because brought to New England when he was ten. His father was the ed- uh, editor of a radical newspaper out there, but his father was the editor of this paper. Which was, I think, a democratic paper, but he was in favour of the South in the Civil War, which had just recently concluded. So that obviously the politics were different in those days. And Frost's name is Robert Lee Frost because he's named after the Confederate, or named for the Confederate general. Well, Frost's mm-hmm. father dies when he's ten years old, yeah. and he's raised by his grandfather and mother back in in New England. And he sounds like. I mean, I must admit, I did like the few of these details that I picked up a few days ago. I had a quick look. He he seems quite unsettled, and um, he seems to have been quite successful because at high school he kind of gave whatever the speeches that they give at the end of high school in America. You know, there's a name for it, I think. And the valediction. Um, yeah, right. That's it, I think. And um, it sounds like he sort of married his high school sweetheart, who was described as sort of you know unusually beautiful girl that he he, he was sort of, I think she might have given the other half of the valediction or whatever it was um, when they were sort of 17, 18 and they married a few years later so he's got quite a sort of you know it doesn't sound like he was that tortured mm-hmm. um, and then he kind of he gets various like options to go to university he starts off at maybe one of them I think it was Dartmouth he's there for like five w- weeks or something before he's had enough and then he goes a few years later to Harvard again for a couple of years and then sort of drops out. Um, and all the while claiming, <laughs> I'm going to be a poet and all the rest of this I just don't really want to do. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I kind of thought, mm, fair play, that sounds good. What if they'll get me out of the washing up? <laughs> <laughs> well, he was a farmer. That's why it's coming back as a young man. He's, he's, I mean, obviously, the, the old socioeconomic background thing comes into it. Not everyone's grandfather is in a position to say, "Okay, then, well, I'll just buy you a yeah. commercial farm, and you can do that while you while you get on with your poetry." It also sounds like his wife. You talk about getting out of the washing up. It did get Frost out of the washing up because his one supporter, apparently, in this family that said, "You better go to university, Harvard, whatever, get a job, become a lawyer, or whatever." Um, apparently, his wife was very loyal to him throughout and said, "No, you should you shouldn't do that. You should, if you want to be a poet, be a poet. Follow your dream." Take the road less travelled. He's like, shut up, you don't understand that poem. (laughs) (laughs) Just very fleetingly on that, very (laughs) many times in his life. I swear I went went bang on about this, this is my last, this is my last statement. Excuse me, do you know where the post office is? (laughs) Well, Robert. (laughs) But but, but, but can I just say, just on that, the the, the road less less taken, the road not taken, um, just the last thing I'll say on that, I've just found the relevant... Paragraph from the Paris Review article for those who can't, who are interested but can't be bothered to find it online. It says the speaker will be claiming ages and ages hence that his decisions made all the difference only because this is the kind of claim we make when we want to comfort or blame ourselves by assuming that our current position is the product of our own choices. The poem isn't a salute to can-do individualism. It's a commentary on the self-deception we practice when constructing the story of our own lives. 
The road not taken may be, as the critic Frank Lendletrichitia memorably put it, the best example in all poetry of a wolf in sheep's clothing. Wow. That's all I'll say. That, that, so that's, uh, that was Frost's own version. Oh, you've whetted the appetite. I'm yeah. thinking maybe we should, uh, maybe we should have been added that poem to our, to our, to our three poems. Well, everyone thinks they know that poem, so we don't have to read it out loud. But that's one, one for people to ponder. I'll, I will put the Paris Review back away now. He comes to England in 1912 or 1913 with his wife. I can't remember why, other than that he wanted to write poems. I think she wanted to live under a thatched roof, <laughs> um, which sounds totally plausible. That's the sort of reason. Actually, I thought you just made that up. <laughs> no, no. I think I mean, that's a totally plausible reason why you would move continent, isn't it? Well, yeah. she wants to live under a thatched roof, so that's that. And then he meets these poets in wherever it was. You were seeing Herefordshire. That, that is Herefordshire. Yeah. Um, he's sort of running a farm. That's right, he's got a farm in England. He meets these other poets. And then 1913, A Boy's Will is published. It's celebrated in London. He writes another volume, uh, whatever that one was. That's celebrated in London. He goes back to America at the beginning of the Second, uh, First World War in about 1914, 1915. And when he gets back off the boat, he's the most celebrated current American poet. Mm. I mean, you said the 1920s were his heyday. I imagine that those years of getting off the boat, of having left as nobody and coming back to be celebrated by New York Literary Society, wherever it was, you know, American Literary Society. Um, nice for him. Shame he was already married. <laughs> <laughs> Not like uh, John Lennon in the... Uh... In '64, going off the plane. At, oh, at uh, Liverpool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 In, fact, in fact, yeah. It's just, it's amazing to me that if you, like you just mentioned, the Civil War as having happened what a decade before he was born. He was born, and then he dies in the year that the Beatles go massive. Like, that's such an extraordinary thing to yeah. have a life that spans yeah. those two. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a guy. I read this the other day. There's a guy right now alive. He's alive in somewhere like um, somewhere in the south, and. His grandfather was Thomas Jefferson's college roommate. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> so American American yeah. history is very, very small, very short mm. by comparison. So yeah, there's a guy currently alive. He's like 94. And his father was like 68 when he had him. And his father was like 70 yeah. when he had him. So he's, yeah. it kind of is a weird anomaly. Mm. But even so, there's a guy alive right now whose grandfather was college, Thomas Jefferson's college roommate. Back. That's insane. Yeah. Yes. My grandfather was Thomas Jefferson's college room. Yes, that's right. Have you been up about it, Thomas? You, you dream, you've been dreaming again. Oh, really? Right, <laughs> <laughs> um, guys, I think one of the things that Robert Frost was celebrated for, because this is as far as I got, basically. I don't know anything that happened. Hang on, hang on. Do, just, ooh, point of order. Yeah. Point of order. You've got a Robert Frost book on the table, and yet you've just pulled out your Kindle. This is the, this is we're dealing with a level of Kindle obsession here, well, which I'm just I'm on, well, <laughs> not familiar with. Well, may I just address this point on the issue of the Kindle? I did, I think, on recommendation station or at some other point in one of our pods since I got this Kindle for my birthday in November, talk about how amazing it was. And I know that there are lots of people who say hate Kindles, hate Amazon, etc. Yeah, all right, fine, that's all true, but it's amazing. I mean, I will say that I would still potentially buy a hardcover of poetry, yeah, for, for sort of reasons, but. The, the reason I bought this Robert Frost book on Kindle um, is because I read an article by Clive, Clive James recently. It might have been a, a compendium of his writings on poetry. And he said something which blew my mind. And also, at the same time, blew my almost entire poetry collection to pieces. 
because let's take a for instance. I have the collected works of Philip Larkin. The Anthony Thway, was it 1988? Yeah, I've got it. You've well. got it. You've mm-hmm. obviously got it. Everyone's got it. Clive James says he draws an analogy with albums and he says you buy the album, you listen to the album. That album was put together. There's a, there's a song at the start, there's a song at the end, there's a, there's a journey through the album. He says you don't read the collected works of Philip Larkin, you read The North Ship. You read Yeah, Counterpoint. Do you actually want any albums by Elvis Presley? I mean, some people only have two hits and then a load of fillers. You actually want to listen to an album by Chuck Berry. I mean, albums were sort of born in the late to mid, mid to late sixties. I mean, like it's the it's the Beatles really that full that, that conjure up the idea of the album. Yeah, but but, 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 but if you've if you've only true. if you've only heard um I understand Sergeant what you're Pepper yeah, yeah, yeah. on the best of the Beatles. Yeah. Have you heard Sergeant Pepper? I mean, obviously, yeah, yeah. this is going back well, into. You haven't heard also, necessarily. She's leaving home and getting better, and all those. It's not quite the same. Is it? The collected poems is going to be everything. If it is not a misnomer, each of the albums is basically the. the that's it's, not it's the how the majority set, of of I don't think that's not how the majority of of um, poetry. No, normally you buy selected, not collected. It, normally it's selected, not... I mean, collected... Well, a collected doesn't... You, you're suggest, saying that collected implies complete, which it most certainly doesn't. Because normally what happens is... Well, they sit down and they sort of take... Well, you've just witnessed it there. Well, oh, you know, you've well, got, sele- you've got selected. selected. What you're saying is if you had collected, you would have everything from from the, a boy's will and... Yeah, I've, yeah, got, I've it, got the collected silver path and it's absolutely, and what you're it's talking absolutely about, everything. It's what you're talking about is a box set. That's you buy all the Beatles albums, yeah. so you've got help followed by revival. Anyway, yeah, exactly. so what's Clive James's point? That you should read things in context, in the context. No, not even in context. If, well, no, he's saying, yeah, I mean, it wasn't really anything that ever occurred to me yeah. at all. So when I, if I were buying a, a poet, I wouldn't be looking for the individual volume that was first published with that title in that sequence of poems and no other poems. He's sort of saying the reason that poems, because he also says that poems get put back in sometimes. So he, what he, so he uses the example of Larkin quite extensively, and I can't remember which one volume in particular but let's just say it's the less deceived i think that was a 60s one maybe and he says he was a huge larkin fan wasn't he he yeah yeah. but he says but he says it starts with this poem you know for a reason these three poems which then thwaites publishes in the collector's weren't in this volume Mm. and there's a reason and then it goes on like this so um you can't remember what your question was but but the point being was i think yeah that isn't something that's really occurred to me the whole album concept which as you say rightly associate with sort of boring musos um talking about albums from the 70s and and, and 60s um he applies to poetry yeah and that and then we shouldn't look at poets as their greatest hits we should think about the context that they're in well i suppose it's just a another way of enjoying poetry yeah i must must say i've read I've, i've got for my birthday last year i think um the sentence to life the clive james it's fantastic. Oh my god! We should do we should do Clive Jones on this oh, yeah. podcast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's so clever. He's, he's so, brilliant. so brilliant. Yeah, uh, that I do not d- 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 doubt for one second. So that's why hearing Clive James. I mean, if, you, if I'd seen somebody else say this, I would have just ignored it. Obviously, yeah. but Clive James. Um, so then I was left in the position of thinking, well, A Boy's Will was his first volume of poems. Um, what was the first poem in it? What was it? Da, 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 da. And I have a book of um, Robert Frost's poems, and I think this might have actually come from America. It may have even bought it in America when we were in New York, but I, 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 it look, it's a wrong shape, isn't it, for a British book? Yeah, it's an American book, definitely. I mean, I could have picked it up at Charity Shop. <laughs> <laughs> our, our, uh, our listeners are now wondering what, what shape this is. <laughs> is it a triangle? Well, no, it's, it's, it it's slightly too small for a standard book and slightly too big for a small book. <laughs> 
You're right. No European would publish a book this way. I mean, what would you say about the size of that book? Um, I mean, I've seen books of this size. I agree, it's a little... It's on the small well, who's, side. What's the publisher? What's the details for our listeners? Okay, it's, so, um, I mean, it's definitely... It's in the US... It was $5.99. Uh, that's what you presumably paid and for. And it's it. the... Um, or six ninety nine Canadian. It's a St. Martin's paperback. Sorry, yes, you asked that. So they, they, they may know that. For people with narrow shelves. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, uh, interesting to see how this is um, well, you can see set it. out then. That, that's just a horrible melange. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's actually the title of the first part. <laughs> this is two men looking at a book, three men looking at a book. Let's, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. let's do a poem. Um, we're, we're 45 minutes okay, in. Okay, right. So the first, okay, well, I'll ring my gong. And so we're excited to hear Robert Frost's voice. He was celebrated in 1913 uh, for being an interesting new voice in poetry. And uh, I think that, that opinion grew uh, over the years, obviously, with his various awards and Pulitzer Prizes and what have you. The only problem I'm now finding is that my Kindle's frozen. Oh, no. <laughs> no. no. Us. Doesn't happen with the books. No, it doesn't. Uh, and I'm going to do a poem uh, after the gong called uh, Tufts of Flowers. And um, I'll hand this over. Have you got Tufts of Flowers, David? You could do the yeah. second reading. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'll find it online. Tufts of Flowers, incidentally, is in, I think, is in a boy's It is, yeah. Right. It's in his first 1930 uh, compendium. Is yours called Tufts? Uh, yeah, the Tuft of Flowers. The Tuft of Flowers. Oh. The Tuft of Flowers. I went to turn the grass once after one who mowed it in the dew before the sun. The dew was gone that made his blade so keen before I came to view the levelled scene. I looked for him behind an aisle of trees. I listened for his whetstone on the breeze. But he had gone his way, the grass all mown, and I must be as he had been, alone. As all must be, I said within my heart, whether they work together or apart. But as I said it, swift there passed me by on noiseless wing a bewildered butterfly, seeking with memories grown dim o'er night some resting flower of yesterday's delight. And once I marked his flight go round and round as where some flower lay withering on the ground. And then he flew as far as I could see. And then on tremulous wing came back to me. I thought of questions that have no reply and would have turned to toss the grass to dry. But he turned first and led my eye to look at a tall tuft of flowers beside a brook. A leaping tongue of bloom the scythe had spared. Beside a reedy brook the scythe had bared. I left my place to know them by their name, finding them butterfly weed when I came. The mower in the dew had loved them thus, by leaving them to flourish, not for us, nor yet to draw one thought of ours to him, but from sheer morning gladness at the brim. The butterfly and I had lit upon, nevertheless, a message from the dawn that made me hear the wakening birds around and hear his long scythe whispering to the ground and feel a spirit kindred to my own, so that henceforth I worked no more alone, but glad with him I worked as with his aid, and weary sought at noon with him the shade, 
and dreaming as it were held brotherly speech with one whose thought I had not hoped to reach. Men work together, I told him from the heart, whether they work together or apart. The Tuft of Flowers I went to turn the grass once after one who mowed it in the dew before the sun. The dew was gone that made his blade so keen before I came to view the levelled scene. I looked for him behind an aisle of trees. I listened for his whetstone on the breeze. But he had gone his way, the grass all mown, and I must be, as he had been, alone. As all must be, I said, within my heart, whether they work together or apart. But as I said it, swift there passed me by on noiseless wing a bewildered butterfly, seeking with memories grown dim o'er night some resting flower of yesterday's delight. And once I marked his flight go round and round as where some flower lay withering on the ground. And then he flew as far as I could see, and then on tremulous wing came back to me. I thought of questions that have no reply, and would have turned to toss the grass to dry. But he turned first and led my eye to look at a tall tuft of flowers beside a brook, a leaping tongue of bloom the scythe had spared beside a reedy brook the scythe had bared. The mower in the dew had loved them thus by leaving them to flourish, not for us, nor yet to draw one thought of ours to him, but from sheer morning gladness at the brim. The butterfly and I had lit upon, nevertheless, a message from the dawn that made me hear the wakening birds around and hear his long scythe whispering to the ground and feel a spirit kindred to my own so that henceforth I worked no more alone. But glad with him, I worked as with his aid and weary sought at noon with him the shade and dreaming, as it were, held brotherly speech with one whose thought I had not hoped to reach. Men work together, I told him from the heart whether they work together or apart. Uh, my, you, you, did you skip a, 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 a couplet there? I left my place to know them by their name, finding them butterfly weed when I came. Or is that absent in your, no, in your book? So beside a reedy brook, the scythe had bared, go straight to the mower and the dew had loved them thus. Uh, beside, I can't remember that now. Halfway through. A leaping tongue of oh, yeah. the scythe had spared, beside a reedy, reedy brook the scythe had bared. Yeah, then you go straight to the mower. And I mean, here it says, I left my place to know them by their name, finding them butterfly weed when I came. But it seems to me a very important oh, interest because, because oh, that's, mate, that's... You can the... take your selected frost back to the library from whence it came. So, oh, so you've got the same? Yeah, I've got the same here. That but that seems like an important part of the poem because that's the message from the dawn in, in a way, isn't it? That... that um, Okay, well, well I know the butterfly has led him to a butterfly weed, and he's seeing a synchronicity in the in the in the moment, and that's leading him to believe that yeah that there's a a sort of a underlying meaning and order to things, which is giving him this newfound faith in the natural world and his part and place within it. Anyway, it's well, a, it, it's a, it's small but significant. I know who I'm selling the next bit of pod follow-up correspondence to the editor of them no, just just send it to stanley and <laughs> no 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 let's hear it who's edited this well, book what's, um, what's their what's their excuse what fraud <laughs> what fraud <laughs> what it says that this edition 
the, the edition from which this selection is taken first published in Great Britain is The Poetry of Robert Frost by Jonathan Cape Limited 1971 that's not your one is it no, no he's got the American. Family. He's got the little dinky American. And I've also got a boy's will, the original, which has got uh, that I read from. So what? what so what? So this is from a boy's will. So this is when he's really young. This is mm-hmm. like in the nineteen tens. Yeah, nineteen tens. Yeah, nineteen tens. Georgian. Georgian. Well, I want to do some further research, but not that George. Um, no, I, I, I don't want to let this go. I'm like a dog with a bone with this one. Yeah. Um, so hang on a second. That was from Jonathan Cape's 1971 uh, yeah, Frost I mean, collected fair, poems. This, you know, it might have gone missing in the meantime. Might this might not be. Well, no, I'm not blaming necessarily the editor. Error. It's not. It's not an error. I mean, what must have happened is either Frost himself revised his poems later and took that out yeah. for some reason, which yeah. I find hard to. Or blame. revised it and put it in. Oh. And just discovered about butterfly weed and went. No, come off it. I don't I, think so because this. I think it makes mu- the poem makes much more sense. Yeah. That with it that with that line in yeah. than it does without it. Um, anyway, can, the, the can part, I just my much loathed by you guys, Kindle. I don't know. The, uh, the texts published in this volume are those of the first American editions of A Boy's Will, North of Boston and Mountain Interval. Now, was the American edition of A Boy's Will different to the English edition? That is a question. I doubt it. Uh, well, then possibly it came out later life, maybe. I mean, you know, we, we find this over and over again. I mean, wasn't it Spender who was, mm. had, had gone in and, you know, the yeah, yeah, guilty yeah. Spender completely revised it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's been a few of those, haven't there, where we found that the poems have multiple versions and yeah, it's difficult okay, to land well, upon a definitive one. But, that, that, but in this particular instance, it doesn't seem like an incidental detail. It feels like it's quite an important part of the meaning. It's also narrative, isn't it? Is, it? is the lines, I left my place to know them by their name, yeah, finding, finding the butterfly, butterfly weed when I came. So he, the, the, the butterfly has taken his eye across to these mm-hmm. this, this tuft mm-hmm. of flowers which has mm-hmm. been spared mm-hmm. by the mm-hmm. scythe mm-hmm. and um, then he goes over to look and see what the flowers are and and and, and that they're butterfly weed and the Can I just say to the listeners that David is just morosely <laughs> staring at his book like Eeyore with a with, 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 with an empty jar and a pop a popped balloon. Just, just very, very slowly and solemnly shaking my head <laughs> mouthing what the fuck over and over again. <laughs> Um, <laughs> no, actually, what I'm doing is trying to find something in the introduction which might suggest okay. that it had been revised. But um, yeah, never anyway, I think it's a, it's a, it's it, it's exactly the sort of poem I would expect from Robert Frost in a way, which um, but, but knowing li- very little as I do, but you know, it's it's him out in the natural world having a having a moment of uh, of uh, is it uh, Thoreau who wrote Walden on Walden Pond that sort of you know communion yeah. with the natural world. That sort of, and Whitman as well writes these kinds of things. You know, I loafed and observed my spear of summer grass, and you know the rest of it um, in Leaves of Grass. Uh, you know, and it, this feels in, it, of a piece with that thematically. The it, idea if, that, that, yeah, sorry, that, that he's that he's out there in working the land as a farmer. We know he's working in nature, and he has this he has this feeling of loneliness and emptiness and nothingness surrounding him and there in this tiny delicate moment of of, of, of a sort of a, of, a, of a bit of natural symmetry or harmony he sort of spies a larger reality which mm. is a very comforting one you know it is a, it is a, it is a faith but not faith in Christ it's faith in 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 the sort of you know the natural world I suppose you know and and and, and suddenly he's transformed from somebody who's saying um, 
you know, we're alone whether we work together or apart until finally at the end that we are together whether we're to, whether we work together or apart that we are part of a larger whole and that we aren't truly alone in the world and that's a really nice insight and sort of epiphany for him in this in this little delicate moment of him just him and a presumably a fork or whatever he's using to turn the the, the, the cut yeah. grass into hay it's very um, clear why butterfly. um his farming career never really <laughs> <laughs> If he, if he kept stopping, yeah, you, no, you, can, you can imagine his wife at the window going, "No, no, no rush. Just every, just, I just, just keep thinking." I think you should read this poem to your father-in-law. <laughs> um, so yeah, lovely poem. David, thoughts? Or are you still <laughs> reeling from this yeah, shock? Never coming back from that one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it it didn't blow my mind. Certainly felt a bit derivative, dare I say it. Um, it's an early work, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Derivative I'm, I'm of entirely prepared to accept that. Well, Rob's mentioned a couple of names. I mean you think of Wordsworth, don't you? You think with stuff like this. It feels like every poet has this kind of, has written this poem at some point. Um, <laughs> pre and it's only pre Have you written your tuft of grass <laughs> yet? I'm still working on it, mate. Um, but there were I've lost my page now. But there were some um, arresting lines and images and I'll, I'll be very happy to give you an example in a minute when I find yeah. the thing again uh, Phil, Phil for me oh, you retrieve your book from the toilet <laughs> <laughs> um, no I mean I thought it was as Rob said I mean it, it, it did sound it, you weren't surprised in the sense that when you when you're reading this poem you sort of thought okay right that's Robert Frost it's very it's very good obviously um, and it's 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 something you could read out at a high school valediction, isn't it, or a university commencement speech? Better yeah. still, um, uh, uh, you know, it's got it's got it's got a positive, uplifting yes. message of community. Yeah, and, and also that tone of thoughtful quietude, which is which is in the the you know yeah. the snowy woods, you know. Yeah that sort of miles to go he's there having this moment of stillness and thought in a kind of a natural environment and and um you know it's as you say very positive it's not a depressing idea is it it's a very comforting idea um, yeah i mean this comes across your desk you go oh, it's the american wordsworth publish yeah. him yeah yes very much so yeah um the um the scythe we talked about that didn't we with shakespeare was it was it actually the word scythe that was used in one of those sonnets that we agreed was the most sort of... Um, well, there was time stop. comes at you with this crooked... This scythe and crooked knife. There was yeah. scythe and crooked scythe and knife. Scythe and crooked knife, yeah. Uh, obviously, yeah, we've got, we got the scythe again here, yeah. and it's the thing which bears but also spares at its own um, whim, I suppose. Yeah. I guess that's death, I presume. Yeah, I mean... It's interesting to compare it with, like you mentioned, the, the sort of the Snowy Woods one because that is a much more sort of spare poem, isn't it? That's a much more that leaves a lot more unsaid, which might yeah. possibly he may have realised be the way to go. This feels a bit too on the nose. Yeah. yeah, like you could you could pare this down into a sort of more interestingly, possibly slightly ambiguous 
poem. Leave the Paris Review to argue the toss about. Whereas <laughs> this yeah, one, yeah. you couldn't really argue the toss about. You, you, said, you said that we, 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 there was an echo of that uh, that so, the scythe and crooked knife. Well, also let's not forget Marvel, who we just did. Who, who, this is this is about a mower, mm. and there was quite a lot of we had the mower and uh, against gardens, didn't we? And there's uh, there's, there's there's a mower and. Uh, I think he's very much got mode. that poem in his mind when he's writing this. Yeah. I think there's quite a Marvel tribute going on here. Yeah, possibly, yeah. The mower and the dew had loved them thus by leaving them to flourish, not for us, nor yet to draw one thought of ours to him, but from sheer morning gladness at the brim. I mean, to write in these lovely iambic pentameter couplets is just a... He's 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 got that down, hasn't he? Oh yeah, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Yeah, I presume you've got the same craft uh, layout. So yeah, it is divided into couplets. Yeah, which is in itself unusual. Yes, yes. Yeah, rhyming couplets all the way through, just A B B C C D D etc. Yeah, he. The mower has come, the mower has made a thing. You know what this puts me in mind of. And I think all, I dare I say, right thinking people. Lunch. <laughs> um, it's that moment of mowing the lawn and thinking, what well, will these sort of flowers have appeared in the lawn? It could be just as simple as sort of um, daisies or. Dandelions, Dandelions uh, or anything. I mean, obviously he's got a bigger field, and he's, he, you know, he's, and and just not wanting to, 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 to go over them. And that's what this poem, in a way, is about, as, as well as the community of mankind, in uh, and the message from the dawn, the slightly more Wordsworthy and possibly metaphysical. But, he's, but the thing is, it's about seeing. It's about not wanting to. But he's not the person who's he's not no. the person who's who's called or charged to mow it. He's. He is part of a process. There's been the mower. The mower's yeah, come, yeah, yeah. mowed it. He's coming with his yeah. fork, pitchfork yeah. to turn it, isn't yeah. he? But he's but he's not doing it with the mower. The mower, he wants a bit of companionship. He wants a bit of you know camaraderie mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, and and you know company or a sense of a shared project, a shared you know goal, aim, ambition, whatever. But he, that, but that guy's gone, and now mm-hmm. he's just there on his own. Mm-hmm. But then he realizes that there is somebody who's also spared the. So he, he understands that there is a connection between him and the mower, even though the mower may be completely absent, but he, he feels that connection. It's almost like reading somebody's poem, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And going, we're not alone in the world mm-hmm. because we can share this. Mm-hmm. We can share that understanding with them. And this guy has come and there's the metaphor, there's the, there's the, there's the message from the dawn that's the, the butterfly and the butterfly weed. So there's something going on there, but there's also this understanding that this guy's come, mowed everything, but spared the tuft of flowers. Well, this, and, in that, and in that understanding that that guy has spared yeah, the flowers, yeah. he is connected to that guy. Yeah, he is connected to the yeah, mower because yeah, the mower yeah. has spared the flowers. That well, this is back, back to David's point about um, Frost maybe not making it as a farmer because... Um, other people would respond to that by going, that mower needs to come back here yeah, and finish yeah. that job. Yeah. Robert, get on the phone yeah. to mowers. And tell them it's called butterfly weed for <laughs> <a> fucking reason. <laughs> um, whereas for, for Frost, yeah, she says, she says go, out there, go out there and check the mower's done his job. Oh, he's done more than his job, done he? Yeah. And I saw the most amazing butterfly. <laughs> Guess what? It's a tremulous wing. I followed it. 
<laughs> it took me to some butterfly away. <laughs> man. Um, yeah. No, it's 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 um, it's fantastic. There's some lovely phrases. I listened for his whetstone on the breeze. That's very evocative, isn't it? That he's. Yeah, I think there's quite a few sound effects going on here. You mentioned it's quietude, yeah. and I guess if we wanted to go into some practical criticism, there's bit of sibilance and um, a noiseless wing of wilded sh- butterfly sheer morning gladness as the one yeah. that I particularly like that's nice and about, like, this is yeah. the morning for, for sheer sheer morning gladness I, I thought of questions that have no reply and would have turned to toss the grass to dry but he turned first and led my eye to look the tall tuft of flowers beside a brook yeah he's um, he's got a good ear for sound as Robert Frost. Yeah. That's probably why he's won the Pulitzer Prize four times. And yeah. I haven't. Yeah. Yeah. I Yet. think it's the ear for sound. Yeah, it's 4 0 to him at the moment. <laughs> also. <laughs> I'm hoping for a last minute equaliser yeah, where they're going to give me four in one year. Um, yeah. Uh, I think the achievement with this painting, you mentioned quite rightly that every poem, a bit poet, most poets have written a poem like this, a sort of communion with the universe poem. Possibly dawn is quite the time for this. He mentions a message from the dawn. Um, I think the kind of, for me, the achievement here, particularly as he's relatively young, so he's like, he's born in 74, this poem comes out in 1913, let's say it's written in 1912, just for them easier maths, what's that mate? That's 12 plus 26, so he's like, whatever, 38. He's not totally young. Um, but the achievement for me is, if I tried to write this poem, even if I mastered the form, broadly speaking, and the sound effects broadly, which are all massive, wouldn't happen, but what ifs. But he doesn't strike the wrong note. It's about the consistency, isn't it? And the kind of, you know, it's it's what he's not doing is as important as what he is yeah, it's doing. A delicate, it's, it's a delicacy, it's a delicacy time, isn't it? And, 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 and that, that atmosphere that. that he maintains yeah. through this, of, the sort of, as I say, quietude and thoughtfulness. This, the one thing that strikes me is it's got the phrase spirit kindred, as in a kindred spirit. Where's kindred spirits from? It says, mm. I, I, I hear his long scythe whispering to the ground and feel a spirit kindred to my own so that henceforth I work no more alone. And I think that idea of the kindred spirits is cr- critical to this poem. Mm-hmm. And in, in, just mm-hmm. a few lines later, we have the idea of it being brotherly, you know, that he's mm-hmm. found this kind of com- companion, this invisible companion that he's feeling a kindred spirits with. But spirit kindred, kindred spirits, where's that phrase from, anyone know? They're, they're I'm afraid spirits. I do not know. No. I mean, it, obviously, the first thing you think of is Shakespeare. Shakespeare yeah. Um, yeah, I don't it, think it's Shakespeare. I think I would have probably... Kindred spirits. Um, yeah, but there's, there's there's a lot of pages of Shakespeare. They can't, you can't retain them all in your working memory. Um, I don't know. The tuft of flowers. It's also quite, I think, quite a um, a bold move to go with a title that is superficially quite. Um, Unengaging, almost yeah. pathetic in its sort of. Oh, it's not from Shakespeare, by the way. It's the earliest citation is from 1706 from a poem by Isaac Watts. Ah. Carry on. There you go. No, okay. that's, that's, I think that's a, that's, a, that's a fantastic. And then from Thomas More in 1778. Anyway. Right, guys, we have read our first Robert Frost poem. Before we read our second, 
do you have any idea, given the poor quality of your book, <laughs> you know, <laughs> knows what's where, when and when it was written or, or uh, which um, collection it's from? We're doing my, my one next. Uh, or, uh, are you doing On a Tree Fallen? Or is that Robin? Uh, no, I'm doing Acquainted with the Night. I have okay. no idea what it's me, from. Yeah. yeah, okay, so On a Tree Fallen Across the Road mm-hmm. is from New Hampshire. Ooh, that's a, which is that a later one. It's 1923. Okay. So we're moving on a decade. Okay, can I just see if it's one of my first three volumes? That um, I've got? And I'm reading one from 19. Oh, copyright 1923. This is from. Uh, it's just from the poetry of Robert Frost. What's your one called? It's called Acquainted with the Night. Oh, yeah, that's definitely in here. Oh, yeah, so according to this, 1928. From West Running Brook. Okay. Uh, so why don't you give the first reading, David, of On a Tree Fallen and Rob, perhaps if you pick up the second. Uh, sorry, what's it called? On a Tree, On a tree Fallen Across the Road. It looks like a sonnet, yeah. Love a cheeky sonnet. sonnet. Oh, I'm not sure I have it. Hold on, I need to find it. Um, on a tree. We'll cap this out. So, no, no, no panic, lads. Interestingly, it says in brackets oh. under the title... To hear us talk. To hear us talk. Yeah. Wow. Ready, boys? Yep. On a tree fallen across the road. The tree the tempest with a crash of wood throws down in front of us is not to bar our passage to our journey's end for good, but just to ask us who we think we are insisting always on our own way so. She likes to halt us in our runner tracks and make us get down in a foot of snow, debating what to do without an axe. And yet she knows obstruction is in vain. We will not be put off the final goal. We have it hidden in us to attain, not though we have to seize earth by the pole, and tired of aimless circling in one place, steer straight off after something into space. Um, Once again, On a Tree Fallen Across the Road by Robert Frost. And in this uh, version, in in parenthesis after the title, it says, To hear us talk. On a tree fallen across the road, to hear us talk. The tree, the tempest, with a crash of wood, throws down in front of us, is not the tree the tempest with a crash of wood throws down in front of us is not bar our passage to our journey's end for good but just to ask us who we think we are insisting always on our own way so she likes to halt us in our runner tracks and make us get down in a foot of snow debating what to do without an axe and yet she knows obstruction is in vain We will not be put off the final goal. We have it hidden in us to attain. Though not, we have it hidden in us to attain. Not though we have to seize earth by the pole and tired of aimless circling in one place, steer straight off after something into space. Do you want me to read it properly? What the fuck? Yes. Am I, am I missing the, something? The, tri- the, the tree, the tempest, with a crash of wood throws down in front of us is not to bar our passage it's to not our to journey's bar, end for good, but just to ask us who we think we are, insisting always on our own way so. She likes to halt us in our, in our runner tracks and make us get down in a foot of snow, debating what to do without an axe. 
and yet she knows obstruction is in vain. We will not be put off the final goal, we have it hidden in us to attain. Not though we have to seize earth by the pole and, tired of aimless, circling in one place, steer straight off after something into space. Not though we have to seize earth by the pole. I'm missing a word in this on this internet version, by the way. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. What, what, what were they missing? Throws down in front of us is not too bar, line two. I've just got is not bar. Oh, right. Which is unhelpful because it doesn't make any sense. Mm. Um, anyway, that's the internet for you, poetryverse.com. Okay, well, St. Martin's paperbacks coming through. With an extra word, yeah. yeah. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> coming through the back of the okay, book. Okay, that's fine, a little crack there. Um, <clears throat> Hang on. We have it. So we will not be put off the final goal. We have it hidden in us to attain. Not though we have to seize earth by the pole. What? Have to, as in compelled to. Yes. Not though we have to seize earth by the pole. Not though we have. This 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 poem finishes without him finishing the sentence and the and the thought because he says. so he's basically saying, yes, as kind of clever, intelligent, can-do Americans, yeah. we are not going to be ultimately deterred. By the absence of an axe. Yeah. By the absence of an axe. We are going to figure this out um, because we've got the, uh, you know, the, 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 the New England... Can-do spirit. Can-do yeah. spirit. Pioneer temperament. Yeah. Yeah. So ultimately, the Tempest knows that the obstruction is in vain because we're going to go round it. We'll not be put off the final goal we have it hidden in us to attain and then he puts in a qualifying clause which is we don't have to go crazy about this now uh we we, so we, we, we have it hidden in us to attain i.e we have the can do we can do it all but he's saying not though that we have to go like um over the top in um uh, laboring mentally and physically to solve this problem that's the clause the last three lines and then he wants to say something like but we just need to come at it with the can-do attitude that we've all got but he doesn't finish the thought mm. he leaves it with this qualifying clause not though we have to seize earth by the pole and tired of aimless circling in one place steer straight off after something into space so it's like a balance between us exerting our will and in this case overcoming a practical obstacle on the road yeah but well, I apologise reader for my historically bad reading of that poem I mean, not even, though I do not understand it I also can't even read it out loud it's so it's, <laughs> a, it's so difficult I can't still can't read that I still can't I'm staring at it not though we have to see it's like not as though we have it's not as though we have yeah. to seize earth by the pole yeah Okay. We will not be put off by the off the final goal we have a hidden in us to attain. Yeah, I misread that as two sentences and it's actually one sentence. We will not be put off the final goal we have a hidden in us to attain. It's not as though we have to seize earth by the pole and tired of aimless circling in one place, steer straight off after something in into space. Yeah, because it's a qualifying clause, I think, in a sense, of the thought, it doesn't get resolved, yeah. which makes the poem really interesting and odd. Yeah. Because he says, and, to, and, and and this is the condition that we don't need to be. The tired of aimless circling in one place is something we don't need to be doing. Yeah. Steer straight off after something into space. We also don't need to be doing that. But then the rest is blank. Well, no, that's the risk, isn't it? Because the, the, he's on he's on his he's on his journey. So if you found if you found yourself on a journey and the road was blocked, mm-hmm. then you might start 
aimlessly circling in one place and then have to steer straight off after something into space. So that's the idea, isn't it? It would put you off your journey. Your mission is, is that way. But because of this obstruction, you might end up go, going, making insane decisions based on mm -hmm. boredom or aimlessness or being mm -hmm. tired of it, mm -hmm. you know. And therefore, not though we have to seize Earth by the pole. It's snowing, by the way. Yeah, make us get down in a foot of snow, debating what to do without an axe. I love that image, that's fantastic. Yeah. She likes to halt us in our runner tracks and make us get down in a foot of snow, debating what to do without an axe. A couple of things yeah. that occurred to me. I think it was you, Dan, a couple of minutes ago, who said, were you assuming that the she of the poem is the, the Tempest, the tempest mm -hmm. not the tree? Because I assumed it was the tree. And then you said that, and I thought, oh, okay, yeah, that's probably more right. But it's a very interesting start, isn't it? The tree, the tempest. Yeah. Well, he's going like, for oh, Okay, so there's two different possible subjects. Okay, yeah. well, she could be the tree. I mean, Although, it's the first. She, is, it the, is it the last named thing that the pronoun refers to, or the first? I think that can thing? be, you could call it deliberate amb ambiguity. I don't think it makes much difference, because... That's not the subject of the poem, is it? No. The subject of the poem is human uh, will. Sure, but if you're looking for a metaphor for things that happen in your life that you have no control over, that's, that's, that, those are two very different... What, trees and tempests? Mm. Um, are they? In what way? <laughs> you said... I wasn't expecting that. Well, no, I mean, let me just say that, I mean, I don't think it makes much difference because that they want to make progress on this road, albeit a snowy one, um, and they are being impeded by a tree which has been blown down by the tempest. But as to whether it's the tempest or the tree that is impeding them is immaterial. It's nature, isn't it? It's, it's, the, it's the hazard that's thrown in their way by... Well, OK, luck, circumstance... Yeah, it's the shit that happens in one's life, isn't it? And that you're, you're on runners. I mean, the runner tracks, it suggests they're in some sort they're of... They're in a carriage, aren't they? They must be. On a sleigh, as runners. A carriage doesn't have... That has wheels. Runner tracks. Well, he's in, in the snowy... I keep calling it the snowy woods poem, that one. He's also... Mm -hmm. a, that that's, has references to... Horses, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. jingling, uh, well, I'm assuming on this, they're, they're on a sleigh being pulled by horses, yeah, yeah. and there's a thing that's come down because you're being carried on over snow on runners. Okay. Presumably. Yeah. And then, but it doesn't really matter what vehicle they're in, but um, that's my assumption. And then, and then. I'll accept that. And then uh, something's got in the way. I feel like I'm already in a metaphor. I mean, I don't feel like this is anecdotal. This happened to Frost one time. You know what I mean? Like, oh, there was a thing. I'm feeling like we're in a metaphor now. And in the and in the and in the natural environment he's in, circumstances got in the way. Something you know has been life has thrown up and a problem, and you can and you can struggle with it. You can you know you're you're on your knees in surrounded in snow. You don't have the tools to cope or or or, or, or you know successfully overcome it. And yet your ingenuity. I've managed to lose the poem. And yet your ingenuity is. Um, I really have lost this poem now. Uh, Isn't a tempest a storm at sea? Not necessarily, I don't think. I think it is. Maybe. I'm saying it is. 
You're saying it is. I think you're right that it is more commonly associated with the sea. However, you wouldn't be have a foot of snow. He's on the coast, isn't he? I mean, New England is east coast, right. isn't it? So he could be using Tempest. What are you trying? Are you saying he's out of sea now? <laughs> he's, setting, he's setting up. He's setting up a a a, a as it were a, a nemesis battle between the. But between either nature and circumstance and human ingenuity. And human ingenuity, and, and in a way, nature's got a grievance. And the grievance is, uh, nature is, or whoever, circumstance is saying, who do you think you are insisting on having your own way all the time? Yeah. So there is a sort of a grievance. There is a sort of nemesis battle. The, the personification of, sort of fate or nature or whatever mm-hmm. Is, is the she of the... I don't think it's referring to a wood or a wind. It's just she is the elemental nature of reality that's going to cause us problems in our lives. He's down struggling to deal with it. He feels that sense of grievance. And he knows that ultimately it's all going to work out fine because human ingenuity is going to overcome the, whatever set of circumstances are thrown in our way. But it's the but, last yeah, four lines. It, because it ends on a qualifying thought, which is so if you take it... T- up to the word attain, okay? That's all perfectly simple, isn't it? We, we're not going to put off yeah. the final goal. We've had the Volta, and yet she knows obstruction is in vain. We will not be put off the final goal. So that's the, that's the bit I'm talking about, which is we human ingenuity is yeah. going to conquer this no matter what. We have what. it hidden it in us to attain. Yeah. But then there's a qualifying thought to that. She says, but hang on a minute, I'm getting carried away with the idea of the triumph of the will here. And he then sort of says... Although we can apply our, we're using the word ingenuity, but he then says, not though we have to seize earth by the pole and tired of aimless circling in one place, steer straight off after something in space. In other words, we can, if we direct our will and intention towards an end goal, be misled in some sense because we end up pursuing something which is implied to be not the right thing to do. We end up steering straight off after something, some objective which we've set ourselves yeah. into space and just sort of drift forever away. I mean, t- t- to use an analogy, let's say that he has... Um, I don't know, that, you know they, that, that somebody has said to him, possibly his grandfather you need to finish your dissertation. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. he's saying, I was on my life going down this path and an obstacle appeared in front of me. And then he's meditating on the nature of an obstacle. And he says, yeah, I can solve obstacles, but I don't necessarily want to apply my ability to solve obstacles (laughs) to finish my dissertation. Yeah. We not. It's a very interesting companion piece to well, both of the other two famous poems that we've touched yeah. on, um, and also I'm starting to kind of see how Frost fits in without having read that chapter from what's it, John Kerry, to the what did he call it, the Georgian, the Georgian poets? Because I mean, this is obviously now absurd generalizing context. Love it, but what the hell. <laughs> um, <laughs> Victorian era, you think of speed, you think of pace of, of, you know, let's get this stuff done, let's get that thing built, let's 
forge ahead. Um, and also you think of that, a similar mentality, as you kind of mentioned, with America in general, certainly in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that Frost occupies this space in between that those two things, like the Victorian um, mentality and then the later yeah. American 20th century mentality. You can see why he's moved from the States to sleepy little Herefordshire. Uh, in the sort of post-Victorian era, when things perhaps were sort of slowed down a little bit, and you know, with the, 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 I don't know what, where I'm going with this, but yeah, the sort of post-Empire Britain, mm-hmm. where we were just sort of. Are you saying he's moved back because, a little bit? Are you saying he's moved because he wants to get away from something in America, or he's moved because he wants to embrace something that he thinks he's going to find in England? Yeah, I think he wants to take stock and stop and observe the the butterfly and the tuft of grass and even the obstacle in the road rather yeah. than think, oh, bloody hell, do I deal with this thing? Let's get the axe. Where's the axe? Let's get on with it. You know, he doesn't want that, does he? He wants to... Um... You mean the increasing modernity of America in the 20s? Yeah. Well, he wants to stand and stare. He wants to yeah. do that that poem. The yeah, leisure. Yeah. W.H. W- 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 Davis. Is there something, is there something, do you think, here, a, a little bit, I don't mean to, I don't want to, you know, apply... 21st century sentiments to this but um, is there something a bit environmentally groovy about this we're, yeah. we're, we're in a nemesis battle or, or rather we are confronted with difficulties natural, natural naturally presented difficulties or, or mm-hmm. obstacles that have been mm-hmm. thrown in our way mm-hmm. And he's saying, this is kind of to your point about, you know, maybe a slightly slower pace of life, a mm. slightly more thoughtful, philosophical, rustic approach to problems, you know, rather than just bulldozing mm-hmm. through the woods. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, we want to we um, overcome nature, but without, I mean, I'm just fascinated by this seize earth by the pole. It's not as though we have to seize earth by it's the pole. It's a striking idea. Idea, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's completely out of the blue as well, as far as this poem is concerned. And also, there's violence of the of seas. Yeah, and he's saying we don't have to. It's a very cosmic idea. Isn't yeah, it? we don't have to go to war with nature here mm-hmm. in order to overcome mm-hmm. a fallen tree. Mm-hmm. We can, we can, we can, mm-hmm. we can come up with a creative and imaginative solution mm-hmm. to the problem because mm-hmm. you know we have this hidden power, this hidden ability to overcome our. You know the the the, mm-hmm. the 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 vexations and Homo sapiens. Yeah, that's that's Wise our man. that's our genius is in overcoming these mm-hmm. problems in creative and thoughtful ways. Mm-hmm. You know, and, then, and that we don't have to do anything this sort of dramatic. We don't have to seize Earth by the pole, mm-hmm. you know, and shear straight off after something into space. Well, that's that's an unknown <clears throat> destiny, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. And very but much not a good one. No, 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 absolutely, yeah. yeah steer yeah. straight off, i.e. thoughtlessly. Yeah, I've been thrown by the wording, but but when you look at the sort of the basic outline of those lines, it does seem to be saying, you know, we have a, there's a there's a quiet and thoughtful solution here that we can we can think our way out of this problem. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it is. I mean, it keeps keeping. No, I think, when I say environmental, I'm sort of thinking about the climate crisis, well, no, which no, is obviously yeah. not something that he was thinking about in 1923. But no, nevertheless, no, no, no. I mean, I think you're, I think you're 100 right, and I think that is a superb call because I think if this poem were adopted <coughs> as Greenpeace's kind of uh, thing, yeah, it would make perfect, perfect sense. Yeah. The tree, the tempest, with a crash of wood throws down in front of us, is not to bar our passage or our journey's end for good. But just to ask us who we think we are, who we think we are, is our own way. 
which is to say we have got this this sort of uh, arrogance of the mm-hmm. modern world you know and, and 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 when we see these these problems which are which are relatively relatively insignificant yes it's an irritant but you know we we can overreact to this we can seize earth by the pole and do something insane you know and dramatic or we can just you know be philosophical and sort of realize that you know these impediments are interesting challenges to our creative you know ingenuity why why do you think the title has that parentheses then to hear us talk i think that's perfect because it's like to hear us to, to to hear us talk um as in, this is the this is an approximation of society's attitude. Maybe mm-hmm. didn't it? That's how you use that phrase, isn't it? To hear us talk, you'd think that yeah. we'd solved all the world's problems. Is that kind yeah. of the... yeah? That's how you'd use it, isn't it? Yeah. To hear us talk. It's like, what it means is uh, what we're saying is not right. Yeah. Yeah. Or you might say to hear them talk. But he's put us into it. Well, yeah, it's well us and we, isn't it? Because it's the whole whole human race. And tired of aimless circling in one place, i.e. our our normal global rotations um, about about the sun, we're going to actually take control of the whole planet. We're going to seize Earth by the poles. And when you mentioned Jules Verne yesterday, it's almost this idea of the Earth being sort of physically moved through the universe. Oh, the spaceship, by us. spaceship Earth, we're riding yeah. it headlong yeah. into the sun. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 man. Uh, um, I see. We seize Earth by the palm. We try and control the yeah. destiny of yeah. the planet because yeah. we're tired of this aimless circling in one place, which is giving us, you know, the yeah. year and days and nights. But we want, and we instead sheer, steer straight off after something. Into yeah. space and just become lost in the kind of cosmos, the yeah. cosmic, you know, yeah. chaos. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, it's pretty far out. It is pretty far out. This guy's right. a kind of bloody genius. Given Pulitzer a prize. Yeah. Well, I think he won one this enough. year. Didn't he? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think he won one this year and next. Year. <laughs> um, okay, well, that's a good poem. And you, can I just say why I really love Robert Frost? Based on this poem and the last poem. There's an earnestness to it. And I think when you were talking about his unfashionability, mm. I think that's part of the reason why. There's, he's saying, I'm speaking for the human race here and I'm reflecting. And I, there's no frivolity or triviality or, um, you know, local issue here. No. It's, it's, it's um, you know, it's, it is quite sort of yeah, um, straight fountainhead into, yeah, stuff. Straight into massive cosmic yeah. metaphor about the destiny of a species and the planet. Yeah. yeah. And our, our, our confrontation. And no this irony. historic crux no, point no with real, nature. No, yeah. no, no sort of irony or... Um, no. No nods and winks. No. It's also a crappy phrase, but it's there's a sort of deceptive simplicity to it as well, isn't there? Mm. Which um, probably explains that what you were saying about the misinterpretation yeah you mean it's got a kind of folky kind of it seems charm easier it. than it yeah. is yeah yeah but ultimately it's talking about the destiny of the mm. human project you know yeah cool man okay right um, the next poem is called um, Acquainted with the Night I love that title picked. Acquainted with the Night Acquainted with the Night by Robert Frost I have been one acquainted with the night I have walked out in rain 
and back in rain. I have outwalked the furthest city light. I have looked down the saddest city lane. I have passed by the watchman on his beat and dropped my eyes unwilling to explain. I have stood still and stopped the sound of feet when far away an interrupted cry came over houses from another street, but not to call me back or say goodbye. And further still, at an unearthly height, one luminary clock against the sky proclaimed the time was neither wrong nor right. I have been one acquainted with the night. <clears throat> acquainted with the night. I have been one acquainted with the night. I have walked out in rain and back in rain. I have outwalked the furthest city light. I have looked down the saddest city lane. I have passed by the watchman on his beat and dropped my eyes, unwilling to explain. I have stood still and stopped the sound of feet when far away an interrupted cry came over houses from another street, but not to call me back or say goodbye. And further still, at an unearthly height, one luminary clock against the sky proclaimed the time was neither wrong nor right. I have been one acquainted with the night. It's another sonnet, but slightly different form. It divide, divides itself into triplets or, or mm -hmm. tercets rather than the <coughs> traditional quatrains. The, the previous one was a proper Shakespearean yeah. sonnet, wasn't it? This is uh, slightly messes around with that, so slightly finishes and on no, a couplet again. There, there's no volta here either, is there? There's no. It's a, it maintains a pretty consistent mood. I mean, there is the word but yeah. on line on, on line ten, but 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 it's not really a change of tone or thought no. particularly. It's a consistent thought all the way through, more or less. Very bleak and melancholy piece of writing, it strikes me, um, and seems to be. I mean, acquainted with the night um, seems to be quite a despairing. I mean, overall, the poem seems to be quite a despairing, uh, almost depressive tone about sort of you know human sadness yeah it, it feels almost like a sort of response to somebody accusing him of not being dark enough or not knowing what it's like to be yeah depressed yeah with the emphasis on have yeah I have would you keep saying I, I have never get acquainted with the night yeah. Yeah. and repeats at the end of course yeah He's too cool to give a shit about what other people say about Yeah, him. I know, but you, you know what I mean? It's, a, yeah. it's almost like that kind I know, of... Yeah, I know what you mean. There, 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 there is definitely a very introspective... Um, I mean, it's, much, it's, it's an urban poem rather than a, rather than a, rather than a um, natural setting or environment, isn't it? It's a, it's a... I'd say that that's an interesting element, for sure. But then the whole farming business, I mean, I don't know how, how long he stayed farming, but uh, but you're right, yeah, he doesn't go to any of his natural, uh, natural, natural uh, uh, habitats for images and examples of his acquaintance with the night. You're mm. right, they are all selected for urban prospect. Although not necessarily, because rain, of course, is universal, isn't it? It feels quite a lot like that, um, the Blake one. London, you know that one. The, oh, yeah, uh, I wandered lonely streets down where the old Thames does fly. Yeah, 
That's got something about a cry, isn't it? Uh, there's in every face I meet. There's definitely something, in some sort of the sound of a... Of woe. In every cry, in every ban, the mind-forged manacles. Nice. I hear. It's, um, it's re- repurposed as history by the Verve as well, is, Richard yeah. Ashcroft. Yeah. Um. Um, <clears throat> yes, yes. Although Blake's poem is a p- sort of political rage poem, isn't it? Whereas this poem is about more personal... Yeah. Um, sentiments, I feel. I mean, I'm just going to come right out and say this is an absolute masterpiece and has gone in yeah. to my all time favourite poet list, poems list. <clears throat> I have looked down the saddest city lane. I have passed by the watchman on his beat and dropped my eyes, unwilling to explain. That's got something of Elliot about it as well, it strikes me. That's that that that's got a bit of a light vibe of the wasteland about it, um, or preludes or something. Yeah. Although, do we know when this poem was written? Twenty-three. Did you, oh, no, hang on. Twenty-eight. 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 I mean, you 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 invoked the idea of a riposte to people saying that he wasn't dark enough. I mean, I, I, I suppose in a way you could make the same claim about all poems were a riposte to something. You could sort of reverse engineer a sort of putative question put to the poet, couldn't you? Yeah. But, um, but yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe maybe in a sense, because I mean, it's, it, it's unignorable that he was a famous and celebrated Pulitzer Prize winning poet by this point. And he he wants to make this expression of it's a very elusive poem to to, to to cosmic loneliness, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's also incredibly... What's the word when you're constantly talking about yourself? So, Self-referential? I mean, it's personal, I suppose. It's a generous way of saying it. But, I mean, I, 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 and I. Mm-hmm. Uh, so however many lines it is, 14 lines, uh, five, six, seven of them start with the word I. Which, to be fair, is not typical, is it? I'm just going to flick through now and see how many times. I can't, the, the word I does not feature that often in yeah. Frost's poem. I, I took, the, path, we, I took think... the pathless travel, the pathless travel. I mean, there's, there's, there's something there, isn't there? But I mean, ultimately, this is an incredibly, seems to be a very personal poem. It's very, very first person. It's more first person than most first person poetry. I mean it's 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 a list of things that he I have done this, I have walked out, I have outwalked, I have looked, I have passed, I have stood still. You know, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a, it's a series of, of experiences of melancholy moments. I, I read a good tweet the other day and it sounds like I'm saying this completely apropos nothing, but the tweet, you know, you just get these random comedy tweets, don't you? And this one was, I think, I, the precise wording is obviously important. I'll try to remember it fairly closely. It said, um, yes, comma, I know the Muffin Man. And then Star takes a long draw on cigarette. Star. <laughs> um, which made me laugh. And um, the choice of the word acquainted here, he's, he's saying yes. I know the Muffin Man. Yes, I, I am acquainted with the night. Yeah, um, I might not be going on about it all the time, mm. um, you know, but I am acquainted with the night. Um, and yeah, all of these images are images of 
isolation. And I mean, I think I said it when I said cosmic loneliness, what I meant was I have looked down the saddest city lane. It's, it's the perspective, isn't it, that he's, um, he's seeing the, you know, the dark. I mean, it's not even dark vision, is it? It's the anomic vision, the... I mean, yeah, Elliot's good. The fag ends or whatever it is in Elliot, the cigarette butts. Yeah, our days and ways. Yeah. Our days and ways. Yeah, a lonely horse stands and yeah. steams. Yeah. And the lamp, the lamplighter yeah. lights the lamps or whatever. Yeah. I think you're right. And, and disentangling this from Elliot is obviously a, a, a fool's errand because he's. I can't imagine Frost has gone... The waste what? Yeah. There's something, <laughs> there's something fa- fabulously pure about this though. I mean, in a way, I mean I don't mean to I don't mean to I don't mean to I agree with you, it's a masterpiece. I don't so I don't mean to belittle it, but in a way, this is the poem that every angst ridden teenage you know jitang smoking poet has been trying to write. Hello. Yeah. yeah <laughs> including me. Uh, on every occasion I've held a pen, you know. Um, and it, and this feels like he's really much done it. You know, and he's yeah. dotted the I and crossed the T on that theme with this particular poem. Except he's in his 50s? Is he? By this point, is he? No. Is that right? He would have turned 50 in 26. No, 24. He would have turned 50 in 24. Right. Oh, my God. So it's a middle age. I could write this poem now. Yeah, you can still time down. Mm-hmm. You've got a couple of years yet, mate. You mm-hmm. can still be writing this poem. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, you're not acquainted with <laughs> the night. You I might don't be, think that's the problem, actually. No, I think you might be acquainted with the dust. <laughs> with the late afternoon. You're on, you're on nodding terms. Yeah, yeah. with the early evening, yeah. At best. You're not, you're not friends on Facebook. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's it is it is a um, it is a pretty Facebook. It's, it's a pretty. Um, <laughs> It is, a, it is a pretty bleak thing. I mean, I really love that line. I have passed by the watchman on his beat. Oh, have you got a LinkedIn my... invitation? It's <laughs> from the night. From the night. <laughs> <laughs> I have passed by the watchman on his beat. I follow the night on Twitter. <laughs> it, it doesn't follow me now. <laughs> That's where we are. With the night. It's complicated. <laughs> uh, I have passed by the watchman on his beat and dropped my eyes, unwilling to explain... There's so much contained in that phrase, unwilling to explain. Yeah, that's the best bit. That's yeah. the best bit, isn't it? Explain. I mean, unwilling to explain. I can't, I can't explain. I can't. Mm-hmm. There's nothing to explain. It's but impossible that's almost to explain. That I'm unwilling Beckettian, to explain. Joycean. Yeah, the huge. The unsayable, the uns- inexpressible. The unsayable, inexpressible, exactly, yeah. And, and, and yet he's expressed it very well in, 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 that, in, that, in that moment. And um, I dropped my eyes, unwilling to explain. So there's a kind of almost an admission of his, of his inability to mm, express unwilling. himself. Not unable. But mm. almost cowardice then. It's almost like you can't confront it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you don't, you don't mm-hmm, want to confront mm-hmm, it. You, or you don't mm-hmm. want to expose it to no. people. You don't want to expose it to the watchman no. on these beat. You, you know. no. And I have stood still and stopped the sound of feet. Again, that's so Elliot. When far away an interrupted cry came over houses from another street. Mm-hmm. A bit of fear there. But not to call me back or say goodbye. And further still at an unearthly height, one luminary clock against the sky proclaimed the time was neither wrong nor right. I have been one acquainted with the night. Oh yeah, I said I loved this poem, but I actually don't understand that last bit at all. At one luminary clock against the sky. <coughs> 
An interrupted cry came over houses from another street, but not to call me back or say goodbye. And further still, another unearthly height, one luminary clock against the sky. You know what's a luminary clock against the sky? It could be the moon. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. Or could it be? No, if it was the sun, it wouldn't be. But then it could be dawn. Mm. It could be like. They could be either sun or moon. Luminary is light, isn't it? So it just means luminescent, I think. The word is often used to describe something that is really bright or glowing, or someone who is really smart. Oh, like as in the luminaries. Yeah. But what I get from that is like, he's not really um, engaged with the uh, like the physics, the physical reality, or the sort of like. Like, normally you would know. Like, if you'd been walking around all night, you'd know whether that was the sun or the moon. But he's not really registering that. Because it's no, the time is neither right nor wrong. It's, it, it, it's Again, Elliot, it's this whole sort of time thing, isn't it? Beyond time or whatever. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, that's it, isn't it? It's time. It's time, yeah. The, the luminary clock proclaimed the time was neither wrong nor right. So again, it's that he's sort of trapped in this, what do you say, the anime. It's like a limbo he's found himself in where time has sort of stopped. Mm -hmm. And it's just perpetual night. Yeah. And the moon is marking the hours, but <clears throat> meaninglessly somehow. But somehow, as I say, the verb acquainted, it's... It's slightly reassuring. Mm. It's like he's saying, yeah, the final rep the line, the repetition at the end, I've been one acquainted with the night. But it hasn't been ultimately overwhelming or uncontrollable. No. Also, it's in the past tense. It doesn't say, uh, I am well acquainted with the Actually, you'll find it's in the present tense. <laughs> <laughs> you knew your tenses well, you find it's in the present I perfect. have been though, surely well I was is the past tense okay but I have been if you say I have been <laughs> it's basically like in my time once upon a time I was yes. also I've been one acquainted with the night as well so like he's sort of distinguishing yes. himself oh, from on. that person now yeah and as like the use of one <clears throat> as that diction it's Put, it does put a distance between. It's not like yeah. I was involved with the night. Yeah, it's a bit like I was. I was a different person then. Not even I was acquainted. I was. I have been. Sorry, not was because it's have been. I have been one acquainted with the night. Yeah, it's beautiful. May I just say so beautiful. Formal. I'm just reading this off Wikipedia, so this isn't insight from me. This is insight yeah. from somebody who posted it on Wikipedia some time ago. The, poet is the poem is written in strict iambic pentameter with 14 lines like a sonnet, but with a terza rima rhyme scheme, hence the tercets, which follows the complex pattern of ABA, BCB, CDC, DAD, AA. Terza rima was invented by the Italian poet Dante Alighieri for oh, his right. epic poem, The Divine Comedy. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, I gave up trying to work the rhyme scheme out after about yeah, the second line. I was sort of staring at it going, what is this? It's because it, Italian is a language in which, which many words have vowel endings. Terzarima mm. is much less difficult to write in Italian than it is in English. Because of its difficulty, very few writers in English have attempted the form. However, Frost was a master of many forms, and Acquainted with the Night is one of the most famous examples of an American poem written in Terzarima. So there's that. So just from a technical point of view... Just in case you weren't already in awe of him yeah, enough. Yeah. By the way, this is the very difficult to write meter in oh, I see, Dante. I see, because it goes night and then rain in the middle and then that, that B becomes the lane and explain. You could do it, it Rob, you're a technical I've written master. the Terzarima, mate, and I'll tell you what, it's an absolute banger. <laughs> <laughs> it was not quite as good as this one, but it was a near miss. Do you know what I mean? Probably yeah. the second best Terzarima. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm just, I don't know. I mean, we had quite a long day yesterday, but I just feel like I've just run into something very large. I'm yes. just sitting here going, oh, God, right, he's a towering genius. Um, but, yeah, that's a good feeling to have. Well, of course he is. He's Robert Frost. He's and possibly also, the most famous well, American poet. This poem, it's so time. short. It's so perfect. Hmm. Um, but yet so cultured and po- poised. It, it, it has poise, even mm. in the face of, you know, universal misery. Well, I think man's hatred. I think the thing man. here as well is that you're dealing with something which is obviously intensely personal. Yeah. You don't doubt for a second mm. that these are yeah, these no, are deep, deeply yeah. felt yeah, emotions yeah, yeah, yeah. that are immediately. But the other Rotted. thing is they're immediately recognisable yeah. and relatable, and you immediately yeah. feel like he's writing about you. Do you know what I mean? So he's yeah. he's tapping yeah. into something yeah. completely. Yeah. And universal. you don't have to go to the footnotes, which frankly you have to do with Elliot and. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, uh, what's you, this? It's Greek. totally accessible. Right. It's, Brilliant. It's, Thanks it's, very much. Oh, this isn't got footnotes. It's totally accessible and direct, and as I say, relatable. You just go, yeah, I totally know what yeah. you're talking about, mate. Yeah, I get that. I utterly get that. And and yet, it's a very personal poem. So it's an amazing conjuring trick, really, as well as being a fucking Terza Reaper. <laughs> I mean, on yeah. top of that, there's the fact that he's doing these two things simultaneously, which is writing something which is accessible and universal. I think what I'm doing now is I'm subconsciously person. making room for Frost in my top ten. Like, Ooh. consciously, I don't know what my top ten is. But now some process is... I can feel it going on the back of my mind. Like, Frost has gone from... Sounds like a, Tiffany's finally getting bumped. Yeah. <laughs> 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 okay. Okay, gentlemen. Um, okay, David... Give us your uh, present uh, state of frost. Has it evolved? Yeah, obviously, because I was shamefully ignorant before, as I think we all were. Um, that poem I have actually, <laughs> I'm slightly acquainted with. Uh, <laughs> funny, I'm very slightly acquainted with that. I just sort of vaguely remembered it when, when we started reading. Um, yeah, can I offer any new insights other than the already said? He's obviously very good. We've obviously, you know, you should. I suppose the lesson here is we've learned this several times now is don't overlook mm. uh, anyone purely because you might think they're they're a bit too well known. Mm. Um, mm. Sometimes you can overlook people for the other for the opposite reason, obviously. But um, uh, so there's usually a good reason why people are revered, <laughs> why why, why you know, the, the people have achieved any any sort of artist has achieved. Um, fame and notability so uh, that uh, yeah this is confirmed why Robert Frost is as 
well known as he is. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's a journey, isn't it, to um, to get to grips with it? I mean, just obviously this thing about the rhyme and the Dante and stuff. Um, yeah, Rob. Well, well I'm, <clears throat> I mean, I'm really, I'm really pleased we read this last one Me because, too. Me too. because it's it's just... the, other, the, the other two felt slightly of a piece and, yeah. and, and also yeah. of a piece a little bit with the poems of Frost I already knew, whereas yeah. this one suggests a whole new sort yeah. of dark side of the moon, which yeah. I've never yeah. hitherto understood existed. Great. Great. Uh, uh, yeah. So, so I'm very pleased to see that that exists and there's this whole dark side to him, which I really, I, def- I definitely will. Um, I've just noticed in this book, which I was, um, I was reading from today, uh, this is the, the that's one not the one. That's not the one you've got, is it? That's not your Frost book. No, no, I couldn't oh, no, find no. that. I've got a Frost book somewhere, but they've got this little treasury of modern poetry by Oscar Williams, edited by Oscar Williams, which I've mentioned several times before on this podcast. And, um, but it's got a massive load of Frost in here. Um, if I can't find... That would be a place to start. Yeah, it would be a place to start. There seems to be quite a lot of poems in there, so I, I would definitely read more because these have been really impressive. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, once again... We scratch the surface, and um, and I've really liked what we found. Yeah, yeah no, I would. I just say I completely agree with you. I think those first two poems I could have forgotten easily. Like they were brilliant, but I could have. This poem is an unforgettable yeah. masterpiece. Yeah, uh, of of unsurpassable brilliance. Yeah, if I'd have read if I'd have read this when I was like nineteen, it would have definitely been like you know. Mm. Pantheon poetry, really. Yeah, but I think it still is still because is, yeah. anyway, yeah. But even more so when I was, yeah. you know, yeah. opposing twat, wearing my own long dark night of the soul, you know. Although you know that may yet be around the corner, you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to have an opportunity to see where you have come on that uh, journey because the final section of our pod, listeners, and thank you very much for. Um, uh, if you are still with us today, we have got this section we've stolen from another podcast, the Jess Nick and Rosenthal Vantage Project, called the Recommendation Choo Choo, the Recommendation Station, um, which I don't know. Um, everyone is now quickly thinking <laughs> of something that they can uh, bring to uh, Recommendation uh, Station. Uh, does anyone have a pre-prepared a pre-prepared answer? Oh, I always have this sprung on me. Yeah. Recommendation Station. Um. Yeah, I've got one. Um, the book I've just, it's probably not going to be, it's not a revelation to many people, but I've just read um, Elizabeth Strout. Just to check that, is there definitely her name? It is her it name, is, isn't it? Yeah. Elizabeth Strout's Olive Kitteridge. Oh, yeah. Ooh, Kerry, which, Kerry's a big fan of that. I She's think, got the next one as well. There's another one. Since yeah, then. I've read another of hers. Um, called Ages o. William ago. or something. So I can't remember what it's well, called. yeah, uh, something like that. There's I've read um, the book of My Name Is Lucy Barson um, a few years back, mm-hmm. which I also enjoyed. This is essentially a kind of loosely connected collection of short stories. Really, I think they are they're written over quite a long. You know, it was televised with um, Francis McDormand. Oh, no. As Olive Kittredge, yeah. yeah, it's good. I thought I watched the TV show, yeah. Oh, wow. she's, okay. she's really good in it. I think she won an Emmy at one of you know, a bunch of awards about four years ago, I'm guessing, something like that. Yeah. Okay, thanks. I'll try and track that out. Um, anyway, yeah, I thought it was very, um, really moving and um, beautifully sort of understated and moving. Mm. Uh, yeah, so the main character is a sort of, you know, seemingly unremarkable, sort of retired school teacher who's not terribly well liked in her community it's all set actually funnily enough in New England Maine okay and you know sort of slightly misunderstood woman who sort of thought of as being slightly cold is, is it relatively recent this uh, I think 2008 but the stories some of the stories date back to the early 90s and they've all been collected together into one sort of novel because she's the main character that links these 
stories together. She's sort of the main character of some of the stories, and in other ones she's just uh, incidental, but she, you know, she features... And the title, once more, for any listeners who missed it? Olive Kitteridge. Olive Kitteridge. Skip the book, watch the telly show. <laughs> Fran McDormand. I'm going to cheat with my recommendation station recommendation because this has already come up. Okay. But for poetry fans, <laughs> I can only assume you are a poetry fan if you're listening to this pod. Um, poetry Notebook, 2006 to 2014 by Clive James. Um, if you are not aware of Clive James, he is brilliant essayist and was a TV presenter. Um and all around Renaissance man and genius. And his poetry notebook is available 2006 to 2014 with a collection of his poetry essays, which are all very, very, very good. Absolutely. Rob's disappeared, so... Um... Hello, I'm back. I've got a recommendation, as a matter of fact. Although I'm only about halfway through it, so I, I'm, I'm recommending recommend it. I can recommend it. I, um, I acquired the short stories of O. Henry. Mm. Mm. And uh, I've read a few of those, and they're very good. They're very, very short, and you could—they're only about sort of like ten pages each. So they're like one before bed. And uh, uh, what I didn't know was anything about O. Henry up until this point. And um, we're talking about American late nineteenth century. O. Henry—I forget his real name. I was trying to find the book. If I could have laid my hands on the book, I'd have just read you the first paragraph of the introduction. That's what caught my eye. Okay. It's basically—it's something like I can't remember his name. I could probably just quickly look it up. But anyway, such and such a bloke, whatever he's, you know, Charles Wilberforce or something, in you know, eighteen eighty-four, is um, working in a bank. Is done for embezzlement. Goes to prison for. 10 years, mm-hmm. none of these are the actual facts, but this is the spirit of it, goes to prison for 10 years and seven years later walks out of the prison as O. Henry, a celebrated short story writer. And in prison, he's decided to give his life to writing and has written this series of successful short stories. And then for the rest of his life, he's like this incredible man of American letters, but he discovers his gifts inside the penitentiary walls and that's who O. Henry is. And so far they're kind of a little bit like sort of... I've always wondered. They're a little bit Bukowski-ish, except obviously late 19th century. They're kind of like street scenes, strange little psychological insights into, you know, people's lives, the humdrum everyday lives of American people. So far, so good. So I'll, I'll probably mention it again next time and say whether it was a success or a failure. So far, so good. Anyway... Thank you. thank you very much for your recommendations, guys. And thank you, uh, again, listener, for joining us on uh, this episode uh, where we have become acquainted with Acquainted with the Night. Poetrypodcasts at gmail.com. <laughs>